of the resurrection of Jesus through the lens of the gospel writer Mark. And so let us hear this story once more. Mark writes this. That's not what he writes, so let's just listen. (laughs) Just checking to see if you all were paying attention. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? And when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look. There is the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid." Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we gather on this Resurrection Sunday. We come from all places, north, south, east, and west, to hear this story once again. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to what you would have us to see on this day. And I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. We preachers, we don't tend to preach on the gospel of Mark when it comes to Easter. There's probably a lot of reasons for this, but the most specific one is the way that it seems to end here at verse 8. Now, if you're reading along in your Bible, I shared this a few years ago when I last preached on this particular passage, Uh, you will see that there's a footnote, and the footnote says, well, most original manuscripts end at verse 8. They don't go on for 9 through 20 that you can read in your scripture, and so there's much question as to whether or not 9 through 20 is actually original, and there's lots of different ideas. Uh, Some think that no, Mark, with great intentionality, ended it right there at verse 8. Um, Others would suggest, well, no, he he probably wrote more, but it would have been in the top of the scroll and perhaps uh, those pages got torn away. And uh, others would even suggest that maybe Mark got dragged away at just the time that he was about to finish the particular story. We, We don't know why exactly, but it takes a lot of work to try to figure that out and to work through it in a sermon and to go through whether or not it's the shorter ending or the the middle ending or the larger ending. And what we preachers have decided is that there are very few people who come on Easter Sunday in order to hear more about the ending of Mark. 
more would prefer to come here this morning to hear about the resurrection. But there is still, even if Mark ends here at verse 8, there is still much that he says to us. You have three women, two Marys and a Salome, and they are walking, uh, we are told, toward the tomb. They are bringing something in order to anoint the dead Jesus. Now, someone has pointed out that it takes a real devotion to go and do something like that because by now the dead body has been there for a couple of days and in the environment, the climate of Jerusalem, it meant that what they were going to smell, let's put it uh, very abruptly, uh, that it was not going to be pleasant. And yet they said, we aren't going to leave uh, Jesus alone without going and anointing. And so they are walking on their way. And I love uh, how on this Resurrection Sunday, uh, Mark includes this very ordinary conversation because at some point along the way who knows when they realize wait how in the world are we going to move this massive stone so we're told that they're having this somewhat ordinary conversation about how they're going to move the stone when Mark tells us they looked up and saw that the stone had been moved away one of the things I like about this notion of looking up is because it describes in, great, in a great way, the power of grief. If any of us, and most of us, have gone through moments or time of grief or depression or deep sadness, you know that what you tend to do is simply walk around with your head almost physically down. It takes an enormous amount of energy even just to get out of bed, an enormous amount of energy to lift up your head for even a short while. These women are likely just shuffling their way toward the tomb. But what I also like about this is the sense of looking up, as Pastor Stan helped me to see in the Greek. It means more than just physically looking up. It also means that it is the act, perhaps, of one's emotions, one's spirit beginning to look up. And as they see the stone that is rolled away, there may perhaps be at this very moment the first glimpses that something has changed. And when they go in, they see that there is a young man there dressed in white. We're not told explicitly that it's an angel. Most would assume that it is an angel. And he tells them, of course, to not be afraid. This is almost always the way that the angels speak. Don't be afraid. But the Jesus who had been crucified was no longer there. Look, that's where he laid. He has been raised. And then he gives what, uh, what Tim Keller would suggest are some of the most remarkable words of grace. Because he tells them to go to tell the disciples to, uh, that he's gone on ahead in Galilee. That's where they will see him. That's, uh, that's a remarkable word of grace. The reason why it's so impactful is because if you recall that what the last time that they had seen Jesus, that these were a group of people who had denied him, a group of people who had said, no, we have to flee, even there at the greatest time of need. And, and you know if this was a movie in this day and age, that, that it would have looked very differently that they that the man dressed in white would have said, oh, you tell Peter and the disciples, he's back 
and he is not happy. And you know it would have been this, oh, jeez, he's alive. We got to run. Get out of here. There is this great sense, but that's not at all what happens in fact. He explicitly says, tell Peter and the disciples. Why Peter? Because Peter, who was, was the one, not once, not twice, but three times who denied him. Peter would have been the last person to think that there was any way that Jesus was still going to love him or forgive him. And yet he says explicitly, tell Peter. So with this remarkable sense of grace, he says, go to Galilee. Now, what is Galilee? There's a couple things it seems to me it's important for us to understand about Galilee. First of all, as Will Williman points out, Galilee is just a dusty, out-of-the-way sort of place. It's not very exciting. It's a place where there's just not much that is going on. You see, you would have expected Jesus to say, hey, you tell him, I'm headed to Rome, and I'm going to be there. Come find me in Rome, or, or maybe go to the temple in Jerusalem, because we're going to rendezvous, and it's about to get rocky. This is going to be incredible. But no, he says, go to Galilee, just ordinary Galilee, not very exciting Galilee. And I don't want to beat a dead horse, but if you've been here over the last two or three months, you know that what we keep talking about is the fact that Jesus does not typically meet us in the most exciting of places. No, Jesus meets us in Zionsville, in Carmel, in Indianapolis, in Whitestown, in Lebanon, in Noblesville, in Fishers, in Westfield. Jesus meets us more often than not for those who have the eyes to see right there in the very midst of our ordinary lives. But there's something else that's kind of fascinating about Galilee. Commentators do a remarkable job of reminding us that the gospel of Mark started in Galilee. This was the place where the disciples, where they lived. It was the place where Jesus uh, first met them. It's a place where they became disciples. In other words, what Mark is doing as he's telling the story and the way that he tells it is that he is also telling the reader, go back to Galilee. In other words, go back to the very beginning of the story. Go back to what we would call Mark 1.1 and start reading the story again. But this time when you read it, read it through the lens of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because when you begin to read the story of Mark and the story of Jesus through the lens of the death and resurrection of Jesus, all of a sudden you begin to see some things that you may not have seen at first. You begin to understand that a part of the reason why Jesus and why we can love our enemies is because of the fact that you know that this is not all that there is. You see, if you think this is all there is, you don't have time to love your enemies. You barely have time to love your friends and your family. You have no time to try to waste to love your enemies. But Jesus has all the time in the world because he knows that this is not 
all that there is. You see, what if you begin to read the story through the lens of the resurrection, what you begin to all of a sudden see is that, yeah, Jesus is called to be generous is because of the fact that he knows this is not all that there is, that we don't have to use all of our money for ourselves in this time because it's not like once we die, it's all over. All of a sudden, we begin to see why it is that Jesus can even endure physical suffering because he knows that there is more to this life than the lives that we are living right now. It is only when you begin to have the lens of the death and the resurrection of Jesus and yourself that all of a sudden what you begin to see is that it is not just the future that changes, it is the present day. But let's be clear. This flies in the face of what most of us and certainly most of the world lives in. You know, where the world that we live in is a world by and large of YOLO, right? You only live once. And I do get that. There is something to that, perhaps. There is a sense of urgency that that can give you. And I'm certainly, and the church has been guilty of this of time, of saying, hey, it's all about the resurrection. We don't really need to do all that much right now. Who cares? That's all that matters. We got our ticket to heaven. What happens today, just unimportant. Let's just sit on the sofa. And that's certainly not what Jesus is saying. But I actually think, and the more I've been thinking about this, I think the framework of YOLO, you only live once, while it may seem like it's a gift, is actually a remarkable curse. That it actually chains you down. Let's take Disney World, for example. My wife and uh, kids and I are going to go to Disneyland for a couple days. We've never been. We're going to do that here coming June. And so I've been kind of looking up some articles just to see. And one article that I came upon a couple of weeks ago, uh, it was talking about all the stress and anxiety that occur before you go. Because you've got to do all of this research, right? And so you, you, you begin and now you know you've got that. Well, you no longer have uh, fast passes. I don't know if you know this. It's a thing of the past. Come on, it's 2023, people. There's like lightning law, uh, lines and there's Genie and there's Genie Plus. And you've got to know all of this. And this particular article was saying that when they went, uh, uh, that he spent about 80% of his time on the app, I guess, trying to find out where are the short lines and how do I make this or do that. And, and he said, as he looked around, he realized that by and large, people spend almost their whole time at Disney World on their phones. And the, and, and the only time when they weren't on their phone was when they were uh, shopping or when they were actually on a ride. And he said, you just get the sense of just this panic. And it's understandable why. I mean, for one, it's expensive, right? I mean, it costs a lot of money. But for two, well, I know that there are some, even those who are here who make Disney a, a kind of a, an annual trek. That's not true for most. There's a sense of Yodo. You only do Disney once. <laughs> and so you can imagine if you're living Yodo and you get there, what happens when there's a ride that's broken down or they're working on it for a week? You only go to Disney once. This is the one I've been waiting for. 
Or what happens if you go and you decide, you know what, I want to eat something. Oh, I have two choices. I'm going to go with this. And you realize halfway through that it was the wrong choice, but you only have so much room. So you're never going to be able to try this again. Or what happens if you want to uh, go see your favorite character and, and, and he or she tends to be on a smoke break? I have a whole other story about that. <laughs> this is true. I'm not going to share it in Easter. Or what happens, worst of all, if it's raining and there's storms? You see, there's this enormous amount of pressure that when you think, oh, YOLO, which means YOLO, you only live once. It seemed like it was this great gift that we were going to be there. But there's an inordinate amount of stress because you know that you're going to be disappointed, that your children are going to be disappointed. What will they ever do if they don't go to Disney World? And there's this enormous amount of sadness. So you would think, oh, it's this great gift. We get to go to Disney World. But when you have a sense that this is your one chance. Now, listen, what if your last name, let's just pick a name, is Disney? And you happen to live right there. And let's just say every time you go, it's free. You go to the ride. It's broken down. Big deal. I'll see it next week. You go to look at your favorite character and she's gone. She'll be there tomorrow. No problem. I'll just come back. You can have the food, whatever you want. You don't like the lunch today. That's okay. Next month, I'm going to have something different. All of a sudden, can you imagine? You can actually be fully present. You don't spend the whole time on a phone. You don't have all that pressure and that fear and that concern that, that your kids are going to be forever disappointed in Disney and in you even more so. All of a sudden, that particular posture, that way of looking at life, all of a sudden changes. You see, I want to suggest that when we begin to be a people of the resurrection, what we begin to see, all of a sudden we begin to see why it is that Jesus could, could, could live you know, so lightly, why it is that he could keep loving people, why he could be present. Remember the disciples, you know, the woman, she, you know, uh, she touched his, his uh, outer garment and he was just, you know, they want to come on, who knows who it is, this place is crowded, let's just go. Jesus like, no, I got time. Remember Jesus with the children? When the disciples said, oh, no, no, you got, you got important business. Don't worry about these kids. Jesus said, no, 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 I have all the time for them. Jesus who lived freely. Jesus, as we said last week, who didn't have to just accumulate things, right, but was able to live lightly with the material things that he had. All of this begins to change when you begin to look at life through the lens of the resurrection. We want to think, oh, YOLO's where it's at. It's not. I want to suggest Rolo. I've been thinking about this a lot. It's not great, but it's going to work today. <laughs> Rolo is resurrected ones live on. And people wonder what I do all week. But the lens of looking through Rolo rather than YOLO, all of a sudden it begins to change. And it doesn't mean that you just sit around and do nothing. It means that you are fully present. You are fully present to be patient. You are fully present to love your enemies. You are fully present to simply give and know that you have this time. You have this money because even if you give it away, there is another life. But I also want to be incredibly clear about this. That moving from YOLO to ROLO, while it does give you an enormous amount of peace, 
that it does not mean that your life will not have challenges or that it will not be difficult. You see, these women were afraid. And why were they afraid? You know, that's hard for us to understand. How many of us, when you think, oh, it's Easter Sunday, are afraid? The biggest thing y'all are afraid of is that I am never going to end preaching. (laughs) But other than that, there's nothing to be afraid about. We dress up, we look good, we go to our Easter brunches, we have uh, pretty flowers, all these things. It's all wonderful. There's nothing to be afraid about. Why would they be afraid? And we completely forget what is actually happening here. I love what a former professor of mine, Donald Jewell, says. He says this about this particular passage. There is no stone at the mouth of the tomb. Jesus is out, on the loose, on the same side of the door as the women and the readers. They went to a tomb to see a dead man. And when they got there, the dead man was no longer in the tomb. The dead man was on the same side of the door as they were. He did not know. If you experience that, you have no idea what is coming next. If you get to a grave and all of a sudden it's gone and someone said the person who was in there is now alive, I am here to tell you that the vast majority of us, myself included, very ordinary people, will slowly begin to back up. Our heads will be on a swivel. We will begin to listen for something, a twig breaking or or, or a wrestling over there. All of a sudden, we begin to get nervous. Why? Because dead men do not get raised from the dead. There would be this enormous amount of fear all of a sudden, and I'm sure some of it was holy, but I think some of it was just good old-fashioned fear. Because Jesus was on the loose. We have a dog named Sherman. He's white. He's fluffy. He's about this big. We've had him for less than a year. He's a great little dog. Uh, He is good at some things. He's really good at snuggling with you. There's never found a better snuggler. He's great at snuggling. He'll just hop up on your lap and he'll just sit there. It's wonderful. If he could purr, he would purr. Uh, But if you ever want to take a nap and you've had had trouble with that, just ask for Sherman. Sherman comes in, he just finds himself right there in the crook of your arm and you just fall asleep. And and now, you know, the kids aren't quite as excited to see me as I, you know, when I get home as I used to be. Uh, But Sherman, man, he is over the moon. It's like he hasn't seen you in years. You know that, right? He's just up on two legs and he's just hopping. It is wonderful. It is phenomenal. Everything about it is great. It could be Sherman calling right now. (laughs) Until this happens, and it happens more times at this point than I can actually count, which is this, which is that you go outside and you're outside and you're like, okay, we've got to go. Let's go, guys. And you look over and you realize that Sherman is on the same side of the door as you. Sherman is on the loose. And when Sherman is on the loose, you can rest assured what that means is that you are going to go places you have never gone before. (laughs) You are going to meet people you have never met before. 
You're gonna have all of a sudden a committee, this kind of ragtag group of people, friends, but also, or I should say family, but also neighbors and those even driving by who all of a sudden are, are with you and are looking around. Sure, man, sure, man. You are going to feel like a fool again and again. And you're gonna be judged. There's no question about it. I mean, in the midst of this, you know, over the last few weeks even, in fact, just in the last couple of weeks, you know, I've had people say, hey, you know, uh, have you thought about just calling him? I have. In fact, if you've been hearing me, that's what I've been doing and he's not coming. Or even just this recently, uh, this was just a few days ago. Well, you know, you might, you might want to put him on a leash. That's super helpful. I would have. Did not expect him to be free right now. And then someone just a few days ago said, you know, if you're not careful, he's going to get hit by a car. To which I said, huh. But it got me thinking that my guess is that there are many of us who at times wouldn't mind if God had actually remained in the tomb. Who wouldn't be more comfortable or live life as if they can simply call God on command and he will just come and do their bidding. Or who would prefer a Jesus that they could perhaps keep on a leash. Because you see, the truth is this. If you want to follow the resurrected Jesus, what you will begin to see is that you will be called to go places you have never gone before, to meet people you had no desire to meet before, to look like a fool again and again, to be judged beyond what you wanted to be judged for. And the truth is this. If you want to begin to ponder, am I following a Jesus who's been resurrected or a Jesus who is in the tomb? Then the question is when is the last time you went someplace for Jesus that you did not necessarily think that you would go to? When is the last time you met somebody or talked to somebody that you did not necessarily want to talk to? When was the last time that perhaps someone looked at you askance because of the fact that you are following Jesus? The question it seems to me oftentimes is this, are you serving a Jesus who has been resurrected or are you serving a Jesus who continues to be in the tomb? Because the truth is this of course, is that when you begin to visit the Jesus who has been resurrected, when you experience that Jesus, what you begin to see is that you begin to change. What you begin to see is that you begin to bring change in the community and in the world around you. What we need to understand is this, that there will always be people who are inside of the tomb. All of those who are saying, it's all going to hell in a handbasket. We should just give up. And a people who are living like the stone has been rolled away say, oh, I understand things don't look good, but we are going to continue to invest. We're going to keep giving to people in Syria so that they can build a retreat center. Oh, it might be bombed. We know that. But you know what? We don't YOLO. We ROLO. We are more than willing to take a chance to say, wait, we're going to keep giving no matter what. We're going to give to Ukraine. Why? Because of the fact that there are people there whose lives have turned from hell into a handbasket. And all of a sudden, they need to know that they are not alone. We are going to continue to send people to Uganda so that people can be helped physically and emotionally and spiritually and know that even though they've lived through trauma, that they are loved. This is what a people who are resurrected do. But they're going to be people, the YOLO people who are going to keep being in the tomb and they're going to come out and they're going to say, oh, the economy's it's so shaky. You better do everything you can to hold it close and hold it tight. And in the very midst of that, we say, oh no, we don't 
don't care about the economy. We're going to continue to give and be generous because the people for whom the stone has been rolled away say, this is not the only life that we live. And if we lose that money because we have given it too much, then hallelujah, one day we'll be raised and we'll be plenty fine. I can assure you of that. And so we are going to keep giving and we're going to give to the food pantry and have its own space. And as I said last week, we will continue to give to this particular building. Why? So that moms can keep coming in and know that they are not alone. So that dads can come in and dance with their daughters. So that we can help in weekends to help people to understand that they are loved and to experience the grace of Jesus Christ. So that our children can hear the story of God and know that they are loved and have been called out by God by name. So that loose threads, who I didn't remember this a couple of weeks ago, could make their blankets for the homeless. That's what they do. Why? Because we do not believe that this is all that there is. You see, the people from the tomb, the people behind closed doors will tell us, no, this is all there is. And you Christians, you're just simply hypocrites. There's no such thing as God and death has the last word. And we will keep standing at the empty door of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we will keep inviting people into our homes. We will keep inviting people into our church. We will keep inviting people into our lives because we are a resurrected people. We are a people who will keep loving, who will keep proclaiming the name of Jesus. And we are a people who, whenever we gather in this space for a funeral, who will say, grave, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? We are a people of the empty tomb. We are not YOLO. We are Rolo. Make no mistake about it that even though those women were silent, we know they did not remain silent because otherwise no one would have known the story. And so we are invited to be a part of the people who make our way toward Galilee. We are a people who are called to live, not as if this is all that there is, but to live like the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true because it is, and to follow in that way. The question is, do you live as if this is the only life that you will ever have, or do you live in the light of the risen Savior? Jesus is on the loose. Let us go to Galilee and find him there. Hallelujah. Amen. 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 Brothers and sisters, let's stand together.